There's a book in my library that I guess is uh, kind of considered old now. It was written in the 80s, the decade I was born in. The other day, my kids thought that TV was black and white when I was a kid. They were like, you had color when you were watching shows? Yes. How old do you think I am? But I guess that this book is probably considered an older resource now, but it's a good little book written by, I don't know if anyone ever came across this author before, Marjorie Lewis Lloyd. The title of her book is the title of our message today, If I Had a Bigger Drum. She got the inspiration for the title from learning about a form of communication that used to be uh, done a long time ago in the islands of the South Pacific. When people living in an isolated valley wanted to communicate to people living in a neighboring valley, they would often do so through the beating of drums. And they would have different rhythms that they would use for different types of messages, calling people to a feast or to a celebration or to a worship would have a certain kind of sound and rhythm to it, or warning them of approaching enemy or calling them off to war would have a different kind. The bigger the drum, the further the message could travel, right? Thus, more people could be reached, warned, and informed. Smaller drums meant a smaller circle of influence. Lloyd makes the point in her book that many of us spend a lot of our lives wishing and searching for a bigger drum. We want to make a difference, an impact, and we would if we just had a bigger drum then God could do more to to reach people through us. And God may sometimes give us a big platform and large amounts of resources to work with. But the more I read Scripture and the more I hear stories of the way God has worked in the lives of people, the more it seems to me that God delights in working through the resources we already have and in the situations or circumstances we are already in. Part of Lloyd's book talks about being content with the drums we've got. In other words, being satisfied with God using who we are, what we have, and where we are, the circumstances we find ourselves in, however good or bad they may be. Easier said than done, of course, at least it is for me. I don't know about you, but probably not a week goes by where I don't pray things like, God, if I just had a budget for that, if I just had more time in my schedule, if I had that same gift that so-and-so has, if things weren't so stressful, if circumstances were better, and on and on, then, Lord, then I know you could really make a difference. Ever struggle with those kind of if questions? You would think that the circumstances in which Paul was in when he wrote his letter to the believers in Philippi would cause him to jot down a few of his own if questions. I mean, this guy is the expert church planter, the greatest biblical scholar of his age, the premier evangelist of the gospel. He even had dual citizenship, right, of Rome and and, and Jewish and men he could move freely throughout the empire. What better asset was there to the kingdom of God than Paul? He's like the superstar player that your team would offer a super max contract to. If anybody should have a bigger drum, it was Paul. But where is he writing this letter? From within the walls of a prison. 
God's greatest champion of the gospel is locked away, unable to preach the good news of Jesus the way he was accustomed to. If I was in Paul's situation, I would be writing all kinds of if questions in my letter. If God only would have prevented this from happening, if I would just have better living conditions here or better resources here, better yet, if I could just be free of these chains, then I could get back to making a big difference for the gospel. But as we open to chapter 1 and we read those words that follow his opening greeting, he doesn't say anything like that. No if questions at all. Starting in verse 12, if you want to follow along with me in Philippians chapter 1, he says this rather, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it became clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains, but what does it matter? The important thing is, in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Remarkable, isn't it? Those last six words are downright incredible. Not only is he not complaining, he's rejoicing. And on top of all that, the gospel is advancing, not, we would say, in spite of his circumstances, but through his circumstances. How is that possible, Paul? How do you have this kind of attitude? How are you still letting God work through you in a situation like this? How could we ever do something like that? Well, fortunately for us, I think Paul has given us a little bit of a blueprint on how all that is possible. I want to just share a few aspects. There's many we could cover, but a few aspects of that blueprint. The first being, did you notice how Paul refuses to use his chains to gain sympathy for himself? He doesn't spend any time or energy trying to get the Philippian readers to feel sorry for him. I wonder, do any of you have a family member or a roommate who, when they get sick, become extremely pitiful? (laughs) They come down with like a common cold, and it's like the world has ended. They become these big babies. They're overly dramatic about everything. They ask for anything or everything, like somehow their stuffy nose has... prevented their legs from working anymore. You know what I mean? Anybody can be a witness to this in your home? Of course, it would never happen in my home. I've just heard it it can happen, right? I would never do anything like this to my wife or kids. But you know what I'm talking about? Like, they could be lying down on the couch, just, you know, they've been moaning and complaining about how they feel. You're on the other side of the house, and you start to hear their voice yelling for you to come. You rush in thinking there's a big need, and they just need to reach the remote that's on the other couch that they can't get up You know, and they can't reach while they're lying down. Stuff like that. Ever have somebody like that in your house? 
who just wants your sympathy for how bad they're feeling. It would have been so easy for Paul to do that with this group. The Philippians were like family. They were so attached to Paul, so concerned for his well-being, right? Especially as we read chapter 2 when they send Epaphroditus to comfort him. It would have been easy for Paul to do this, but he makes no attempts to gain sympathy for himself. And this is the part of the letter where he would most appropriately do that. In fact, that line that starts, verse 12, where he says, now I want you to know that was also customary in the structure of letter writing. Remember we talked about that last time with his greeting. There was some certain customary formats that, the, that a letter would follow, and he followed some, but he tweaked them to make it more special. Well, he kind of does the same thing here. That's a very common phrase. Now, I want you to know that was customary. Now, the, the readers are expecting, uh, after the greeting, he's going to tell us everything about what's going on with him, how he's doing, what the conditions are like. But rather than say, I want you to know how terrible things are here, Paul says, I just want you to know how good the gospel is doing here. Rather than describe how tight or heavy or uncomfortable the chains are, he describes how the chains have helped point people to Jesus. Now, of course, it is healthy to share your hurts with others, to find good, safe spaces, to talk about things you're struggling with, absolutely. But maybe what our minds should dwell on the most is not on getting sympathy for the plight we're in, but on how God can use the plight we're in. Which leads us to the next aspect of the blueprint. Paul seems to view his sufferings as an opportunity rather than a hindrance to the gospel. Rather than worry about the opportunities he doesn't have, Paul seems to make good use of the opportunities he still does have. His cell becomes the sanctuary, the guards, his congregation. I can just picture him, can't you, when, when a new guard would come on duty that Paul would light up and think to himself, he doesn't realize it yet, but I'm here to guard him for Christ. Now, I also don't mean to sound glib or insensitive here. I'm in no way saying that this experience would have been easy or pleasant for Paul, that suffering is something that we brush aside and take lightly. In fact, it is a really hard process often to let God use our sufferings for his good. I know I have mentioned her story before, a different part of her story, and, and she's kind of well-known. Her ministry's been around for a while, but I just can't help but think of Joni Erickson Tata as an example to keep in mind here. She was that woman, if you remember, who broke her neck when diving into the shallow waters of the Chesapeake Bay when she was a teenager, paralyzed her from the neck down. For decades now, she has allowed God to work through this horrible tragedy to bring about good, good for the gospel, for Jesus and the lives of others. Through her 30 books, her artwork, her speaking, her organization, she has touched the lives of millions of people, confined to a wheelchair with virtually no physical strength whatsoever. She has changed the world. But if you read parts of her story, you will find that she has never claimed that it has been an easy journey. Quite the opposite. Of course, if you read some of the times that she describes those early years, fresh from the accident, they were especially hard, where she experienced serious depression and despair, suicidal thoughts, struggles with her spirituality. She said, I railed at God over and over for allowing such a thing to happen. And then even though she found a way to surrender to God, let him work through her situation, she describes 
over and over how it is a daily struggle for her. One time in which she described an example of this in one of her books, she said she was at a woman's conference a number of years ago and she had to go to the restroom. She made her way inside the restroom and it was crowded with lots of other women. And one woman who was putting on lipstick recognized who Joni was and lit up and said, oh, Joni, it's you. You always look so together, so happy in your wheelchair. I wish I had your joy. Several other women around nodded. Yes, how do you do it? She asked as she clapped or capped, sorry, her lipstick closed. To which Joni replied, I don't do it. In fact, may I tell you honestly how I woke up this morning? This is an average day. After my husband, Ken, leaves for work at 6 a.m., I'm alone until I hear the front door open at 7 a.m. That's when a friend arrives to get me up. While I listen to her make coffee, I pray, oh Lord, my friend will soon give me a bath, get me dressed, sit me up in my chair, brush my hair and teeth, and send me out the door. I don't have the strength to face this routine one more time. I have no resources. I don't have a smile to take into the day. But you do. May I have yours, God. I need you desperately. One of the ladies asks, so what happens when your friend comes through the door? I turn my head toward her and I give her a smile straight from heaven. It's not mine. It's God's. And so she goes on gesturing to her paralyzed legs. Whatever joy you see today was hard won this morning. I have learned that the weaker we are, the more we need to lean on God. The more we lean on God, the stronger we discover him to be. I would also assume that the joy Paul speaks of having here in prison was also hard won, that it hasn't been an easy journey for him. But like Joni, he made it a journey with Jesus, which is why joy could come eventually, and that even his sufferings could serve as an opportunity for the gospel which sort of leads us to the last aspect of the blueprint I want to um, point your attention to today. And as I do this, I wanna invite the praise team to come back up so that they can get situated as we go into this last aspect of the blueprint. And that is this, for Paul, the most important priority was the person and the good news of Jesus. That Christ gets preached and the gospel spreads was everything to him. I am astounded, aren't you, at Paul's comments through those verses 15 through 18 where he describes how some people are preaching about Jesus out of selfish ambition, specifically to stir up trouble for him. As if prison wasn't hard enough to deal with. He had this on top of it. That would definitely have made me want to add even more if questions in the letter. God, if only these people were preaching about you for the right reasons, if only they weren't trying to stir up trouble for me, then, then we could get somewhere, God. But what does it matter, Paul says? What does it matter? The important thing is, is that in every way, Christ is preached. What a mindset. 
Even in the cruelest of circumstances, the person and good news of Jesus is all that mattered to Paul. There's a story of 40 Roman soldiers from the fourth century who converted and became devout Christians. Their superiors were not happy about this, and in no uncertain terms, Roman officials said that they had to renounce their faith, stop sharing the gospel, or they would be put to death. But the Christian soldiers could not renounce their faith. The person and message of Jesus was their most important priority in their life because they had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They were beaten and ordered to remove their clothes and march out onto the center of a frozen lake where they would remain until they froze to death. As that little band of believers went out on the lake, they huddled together. But rather than despair, they began to pray aloud and sing songs to Jesus together. For several days, they endured like this. One of the soldiers who was standing guard was so moved and touched by their faith and loyalty to Christ, changed his heart. He went back to his superior, laid down his sword, his shield, and his clothes, proclaimed himself a Christian, and went out and joined them on the ice. Prison, troublemakers, even a death sentence on a frozen lake, what does it matter? The important thing is that Christ is preached. I so admire that mindset of Paul and those soldiers and of people like, like Joni Erickson Tata. I wish I could say that it's the mindset I usually have, but the truth is I often find myself asking for a bigger drum over and over again. If things were just different, Lord, then we could get going on something good. If you struggle with that too, I invite you to make a commitment with me today, a commitment to just be content, letting God use who you are, what you have, and where you are. The circumstances that you're in, even if they are so crummy, it won't always be easy, but Paul gave us a pretty good blueprint to help us get started, and a pretty good reminder that our God often does his best work when we let him use the drums we've got. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the power of your name. It is healing and it gives us life. And we thank you for the peace that we have in your presence. Lord, we pray for your presence to burn like a fire in our hearts, in our families, in our church family, in our community, in our world. And Lord, I know a, a big way in which you want to do that is just through us. What a privilege that you would call us to partner in the gospel ministry with you. Lord, help us to be content and open to having you use just us right where we are with what we're going through to help your presence burn like a fire in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.